Hi friends, welcome to The Well this morning. My name is Ryan Gear. I'm the lead pastor here, and if you're new with us, you're our guest. We're thrilled you're here. If you'd like to let us know you're here, you can text the word WELCOME to the number 480-530-7234 and uh, tell us about yourself, and thank you for joining us this morning. Um, thank you to Matt and Jackie for the, the original song this morning that absolutely fits this, uh, this topic we're talking about in our new series, Distressed, Living in an Age of American Anxiety. So that's where we're headed over the next few weeks. This is a communion service today. If you want to participate with us, just grab a piece of bread and a beverage and have that ready uh, by the end of the service, and then we can take communion together. Uh, so thank you uh, for being here this morning. So if you are feeling more anxious than usual, you're probably right. Uh, the Census Bureau has been monitoring the, the self-reported stress levels of Americans. And as of mid-July, 35% uh, of Americans said they were experiencing symptoms that could be classified that are diagnosable as generalized anxiety disorder. And uh, that's almost double the percentage six years ago. It's up five percentage points since January. So we are, and I think it's just okay for us to, to begin by acknowledging we are living in one of the most difficult times in American history. I don't think that's an overstatement at this point. 2020 is, is being compared to the, the racial tension in America of 1968 to the pandemic of 1918, even to the division of the Civil War. We're not there yet. I don't, think, I don't think this is the worst year in American history. I think it's probably in the top five. So if you are feeling far more anxious than usual, I, I think you're, you're, probably, you're probably right. This, is, this has just been a really difficult year. And so maybe the best way for us to begin is just to get that out there, to all kind of say it out loud and then just to take a breath and, and acknowledge the truth of where we are. We're living in a time that feels like insanity, where we are, we're, we're kind of told to deny reality by some folks, the reality of what we're living through, and, and it's no big deal, and let's pretend it's not happening, and, and we're living in a time of division and anger. And... Most of us probably have the idea that it's not even as bad as it's going to get yet. It, it could get worse before it gets better. And so that's just where we are. And I think it's, it's probably healthy just to acknowledge that. Now, we want to end with hope, of course, but at, at the same time, we don't want to downplay where we are now. Uh, the, the first step to, to getting better is admitting there's a problem. And I think it's probably good for us if we just all kind of say out loud, yeah, this is where we are. This is, this is what I'm feeling. So in our congregation, just this past week, somebody lost their mother to COVID. Uh, we have people in our congregation that have lost friends and loved ones. We had somebody else who was hospitalized. Um, we have people who you know, have little kids or who are school teachers like my wife. And, and right now, at least, the schools in our area are planning on starting in-person class on August 17th. I mean, that could change, but we're just kind of, we're just kind of like in this limbo. What? Like, what is going on and what's real? And, 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 and we're, being, we're being given uh, competing messages, one by scientists and doctors and the other by politicians. And 
we are just living in an incredibly difficult time. The GDP fell by, I believe, 32.9% in the second quarter, which is the largest drop in American history. So uh, some of us have lost jobs. We have people in our congregation searching for a job right now. And so that's just where we are. Uh, we are living in one of the most anxious years of American history. So uh, if, uh, if you're feeling like uh, it's difficult to cope, if you're finding yourself eating more, like emotional eating, stress eating or drinking more, having difficulty sleeping, being more on edge, being, being irritable, um, those are symptoms of anxiety. And um, I actually had a friend tell me in the past couple of weeks that he could remember more nightmares about protecting his family, that he's having like, like more nightmares recently. And so if that's you, I think that makes you normal. And so in this series, we're, what we're going to do is talk about what the, the scripture says about coping with anxiety. We're going to look at scientific research on coping with anxiety. And then we're also going to address the root causes of the anxiety that we feel. So we, we want to do two things every week in this series to uh, talk about how we can feel better and then also uh, talk about uh, how we can address the root causes that are of, of our anxiety in the first place. So today we're talking about political anxiety, anxiety that comes from politics. Now it's, it's been said a lot lately that we are living in unprecedented times. I don't know about you. I am ready for totally precedented times. <laughs> I'm ready uh, for like boring politics, boring news where I don't have to care about like who tweeted what, like, I'm ready for totally precedented, normal, boring times. I, I don't know about you. Um, but it goes without saying that one of the major stressors in, in our lives right now is our political situation. I mean, let's, let's face it. Wearing a mask is political now. What football players do before they play is political now. When kids go back to school is political now. When churches should meet for in-person worship again is political now. It just seems like everything is politicized. We're just living in this, in this daily barrage of, of political division and, and, and outrage. And, and we just see you know, one horrific story after the next about the, the, the latest crazy thing that's happened today in politics in the United States. And so that's where we're headed today. We're talking about political anxiety. Real quick, I wanna share the schedule for the entire series. Today, political anxiety. Next week, we're going to talk about financial anxiety. And then August 16th, COVID-19 anxiety. August 23rd, relationship anxiety in general. The anxiety that we, you may always feel even in normal times, but during the shutdown and during a, a divided political time, we can feel more relational anxiety than usual and then future anxiety, uh, just anxiety about the future, what the future may hold. So that's where we're headed in this series. So my wife told me this week about a term that I think just perfectly captures uh, the, the time we're living in when it comes to political anxiety, and it's the term doom scrolling. Have you heard? Is there a more 2020 term than doom scrolling? What doom scrolling is, is my phone's way over there, 
It's you know picking up your phone, your iPad, and just scrolling through Facebook or Twitter and just, just reading horrific story after horrific story about what has happened in the world today. Who tweeted what? What's going on? And, and I don't know about you, but I, I'm like, as soon as she told me that, I'm like, oh, I doom scroll before I go to bed. Like, that can't be good. And, and it seems like the psychology behind doom scrolling is we feel like if we're informed about what's happening in the world, then we can do something about it. Like, I don't want to miss out on what's happening because I feel like if, if I can just, you know, scroll through and see every horrible thing that happened that day, I can somehow control it. Or I, I can, and this is a positive thing, like I could be an influence. I can do something about it. I just want to be an informed citizen and be engaged. That's a good thing. But I think in my own life, and probably for a lot of us, it's gone too far. We're maybe just several times a day, we're just, we're just doom scrolling. And, and even before bed. And so I thought doom scrolling is probably a pretty appropriate term for the time that we're living in. And some of us struggle with anxiety in normal times. Somebody just messaged me this morning that, and I appreciate that by the way, just letting me know that, that he was looking forward to the series and, and he said that he always struggles with anxiety and it's been just ratcheted up over the past several months. I can definitely identify with that. Uh, when I was preparing this message today, like Friday morning is my normal sermon writing time when I finish you know, my message for that coming Sunday. And just confessions of a pastor, writing sermons for me is incredibly anxiety producing. Like I'm always keyed up on Friday mornings just trying to like just get down on my thoughts, organize it right, you know, cut this, add this. And, and you know, I've realized for a long time the reason that I'm so anxious about preparing sermons is I'm always afraid that it's not going to be as good as I want it to be. And if you think about it, that's just, that's fear of failure. Classic, typical, just fear of failure, fear that whatever I do is not going to be good enough. And I just always live with that anxiety. So Friday morning, I am sitting in front of my computer, writing a sermon about anxiety and feeling like a lot of anxiety. I'm like, well, this is, you know, irony. And, and I just, you know, had to acknowledge, you know, I always get tense about this, but, but now it's even more so. So first of all, the first of two things we're going to do today is how can we reduce our anxiety? And, and again, if you and I were having a conversation right now over coffee, you know, 15 feet apart from each other, you would probably say something similar to what I would say. Right now is just really, really hard. And all of the advice about reducing anxiety just kind of seems to fall flat. Like it just, there's a lot of, you know, anxiety reducing advice or tips that just seem cliche. And, and even talking about them can almost kind of be like, you know, I don't know that that's going to work right now because we're just living in such a difficult time. So I just want to, just want to get that out there as well. I mean, you could list tips for reducing anxiety, exercise, get plenty of sleep, it, which it's hard to exercise. The gyms are closed in, Ari in Arizona at least, and it's like 118 outside. So you have to exercise indoors, but you know, um, not, not stress eating, not stress drinking, right? Learning a hobby or like practicing a hobby you already have, you know, making time 
to do things that you enjoy, making time for your family, like structuring a sit down time, like we're gonna hang out as a family now, we're gonna play cards, we're gonna play video games, or if you live alone, reaching out to friends you know, over you know, Skype or Facebook Messenger or Zoom or whatever it is, um, getting involved in a connect group, uh, an online connect group or pub theology, like the things that we have. I mean, you could list out anxiety reducing activities that, that could help. Now, of course, knowing them and doing them are two different things. So I'm talking to smart people right now who, who, could, who could just list, yeah, all the things you can do to, to reduce anxiety, but maybe doing them is a, is a whole other matter. And so we live in such a difficult time that even talking about reducing anxiety can fall flat because we're just not sure we can do it. From the perspective of faith, uh, from the perspective of people who want to follow Jesus Christ, it's important, I think, that we, we look at our spiritual ancestors and how they dealt with life, how they dealt with anxiety, how, how they dealt with some of the most difficult experiences in human history that are found in the Bible. And so the Bible, our scripture, is a record of our spiritual ancestors. And so I just wanted to, to rapid fire through some verses about anxiety from the Bible. They're not going to be on the screen, but just, just wanted to read some verses about how our spiritual ancestors who recorded their lives in our scriptures dealt with anxiety. Psalm 94, 19. When anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought joy to my soul. Matthew 6:34. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. 1 Corinthians 7:32. Paul writes, I want you to be free from anxieties. Anxiety, <laughs> it says Isaiah, and I just said anxiety instead of Isaiah. You know where my headspace is. Isaiah 35, 4. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come and save you. Psalm 34, 17. When the righteous cry for help. Have you, have you felt like crying for help lately? The Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. 1 Timothy 1, 7. For God gave us the spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, come to me, this is Jesus speaking, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Psalm 55, 22, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. There's more. Hebrews 13, 6. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? John 14, 27. Peace. This is Jesus again. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Couple more. First Peter five six through seven. Humble yourselves therefore, under God's mighty hand, that He may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on God, because God cares for you. And then finally, from Philippians, our scripture for today. Paul, the apostle Paul, writes, 
Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. The Lord is close to you. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. That's the Apostle Paul writing in Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. And then I just want to focus on this verse for a second. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, for some of us, you hear those scriptures and, and you remember, if you've been around church for a while, you remember sermons you've heard before. And, and just like the tips for reducing anxiety, these scriptures could, could fall flat. And you could be like, well, do not be anxious about anything. Thanks. I'll do what I can, and, and that, that may not help so much. But uh, if, if we could take a look at what was happening behind the Scripture in its historical context, perhaps it might be more helpful to us. And then we could, we could actually pick up a practice that I've experienced in my own life has reduced my anxiety. I, I've been practicing this kind of off and on for the last few years, actually not daily, a lot of times not even weekly. But when I really felt like I had to, I would, I would do this practice that I'm going to share with you, and I definitely have done it this week, and it has, it has helped me. And it's based on this verse, and I want to share it with you too. But, um, I want to talk about moving from doom scrolling to thank scrolling. Moving from doom scrolling to thank scrolling. So first of all, this Philippians verse that we read or verses that we read. The Apostle Paul writes this letter to, to followers of Jesus who were living in the city of Philippi. It's in Greece. And it was a Roman colony. And it was, it was a, a middle-class city. It had done pretty well. Um, so there was, some, there was some economic prosperity in the city. Middle-class folks, a lot of them were, were the ancestors of Roman soldiers who settled there um, in, in Philippi. But when Paul writes this letter, the letter to the Philippians, Paul writes it from prison. It's called uh, a prison epistle. We're not entirely sure what prison Paul was in or, or when it was written. It was probably written when Paul was in prison in Rome in the early 60s AD. So the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians from prison. He's in a prison cell. Why was Paul in prison? The Roman emperor at that time was the emperor Nero. And this was a time of persecution of Christians. Of course, 
because of our political situation in the United States and the way that religion and politics are fused in America, a lot of us hear the word Christian and we think of something very negative that we don't want to be a part of. And maybe for you, it's, it's kind of all you can do to watch a, a church video today. But in this time, of course, you know, following Jesus was new. And Paul traveled, spreading the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, uh, to various cities throughout the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, it was expected that you would worship the emperor. The emperor, especially Nero, was a narcissist. He loved living in extravagance. He had delusions of self-grandeur. He only cared about himself. The people knew that he was not qualified to hold office. He, he was not qualified to be an emperor. He was viewed as a madman, somebody who couldn't be trusted, somebody who was a sociopath. When, when Rome burned in AD 64, uh, the, the city burned. There were, there were people who believed that, that Nero had the city set on fire purposefully. And then he blamed Christians just to blame somebody else for his failures as a distraction for how bad he was governing. So Paul was a victim of his madness. And eventually Paul was executed, just like the Apostle Peter, under the authority of the Roman Emperor Nero. And so Paul is in prison. He won't worship the emperor. He's spreading the gospel. He is viewed as... as uh, being an insurrectionist, he's protesting too much, and he's thrown in prison. And that's where he writes this letter from. The words that we just read, do not be anxious about anything. And earlier, the word rejoice, this, this letter is only four chapters long. You could read it in like 10 minutes. And Paul uses the word joy or rejoice 16 times in the letter to the Philippians and says, writing from prison, do not be anxious about anything. It seems like somebody writing that obviously would, would be counterintuitive when they're facing circumstances like, like Paul was. It could also be true that when you are living in one of the most difficult times of your life, you're forced to deal with your anxiety and to find some new place some new reservoir that you didn't even know existed because you don't have any choice. You're living in such a difficult time that you don't really have the choice about whether to deal with it or not. You have to search deep within and find something new, something, some strength maybe you didn't even know you had. And I think that's what happened to Paul. He was probably sitting in what was, I mean, what now would be called a dungeon in the dark, chained to the floor, chained to the wall. And he's dictating a letter to somebody who was allowed to visit him. And then they could, they could take that letter to this, this church in Philippi. And he says, rejoice. Don't be anxious about anything. You can imagine somebody in chains, probably who has is, who is gone deep within and is saying things like, you know what? In this worst time of my life, I'm figuring out more and more what life is all about. And there is, there is a source of strength and joy and peace that I didn't even know I had. And this has put me in touch with what really matters in life. And so share this, write this down and share this with, with my friends in Philippi. I think that's what was happening.
And I think somehow, probably in the darkness of this, this dungeon and in the middle of the night when he couldn't sleep, Paul was learning something about praying with thanksgiving. Praying, talking to God, asking God, God, help me. God, rescue us. God, do something about these circumstances. God, we need help. God, give us answers. God, give us clarity. God, help us to oppose forces that, are, that are, seem to be destroying human life and against, and against democracy and against freedom and, and against people's health. And people are dying and there are people who don't even care. God, help us. And at the same time, praying with thanksgiving. So maybe moving from doom scrolling to think scrolling. So this exercise that, that I did, or I've been doing, um, and I've kind of modified it a little bit, but what I've done this week is I've written out a prayer, like on the notes app on my phone. I've written out a prayer. I'm going to read my prayer that I wrote. And then after I write the prayer, I'm picking out things in that prayer that I'm thankful for. It's essentially why I'm praying those things because I'm thankful for them. And I just list those things. And if you do this over time, your list grows, your prayer grows, and, but your, your list of things that you're thankful for grows. And you can scroll through that list of your prayers and, and things that you're thankful for. And you can thank scroll and see what really matters in life. And maybe find some reservoir of joy and strength that you didn't even know you had. So here's my prayer. This is the prayer that I wrote uh, Saturday morning, actually, yesterday morning. I wrote, God, I feel anxiety because I'm worried that my wife will get COVID-19 at school. She's a teacher. I want my wife and sons to live a long, productive life, and I don't want their lives to be taken needlessly because of a disease that has been politicized. Have you prayed something like this? Please protect her and my sons. And it seems best that school would be online during a pandemic. I want them to live a free live in a free and fair society that uses reason and, and, and looks at science and uses common sense to make decisions so they can experience the best that life has to offer them. That was my prayer. That's the prayer of my heart. That prayer speaks to my deepest fears that something would happen to my family. So after that prayer, I wrote next in, in my notes app the things in that prayer that I'm thankful for. I'm thankful for my wife and sons. I'm thankful that they're alive and healthy. I'm thankful that they have opportunities in life. I'm thankful that I get to be a part of their lives and that I get to care for them. And then just today, I went back and I scrolled through that prayer and that thankful list that I just made and then you know, thankfulness list that I've made before. And I see all the things in my life that I'm thankful for. And I'm, I'm a news addict. I mean, doom scrolling is something that I can fall into immediately without even realizing I'm doing, doing it. Like my, you're probably, you might be the same way. I won't put this on you. I'll speak for myself. When I pick up my phone, like my thumb goes to Facebook and Twitter automatically. My, my muscles in my hand are trained to click on those apps. Like first thing in the morning, late at night, at lunch. That's just what I do. And so I'm trying to adopt this practice of praying with thanksgiving, to thank scroll instead of doom scroll. Now, I'm not, a, I'm not a clinical counselor. By the way, if you feel like talking to a counselor would be helpful to you, I'd be glad to refer you 
to a clinical counselor. I have done that for some folks in our church over the past few weeks. And if you talk to a counselor during this time in your life, I would consider that a win. If, if all this series does was kind of nudge you toward talking to a counselor, that would be a W for me. And so let me know if, if, if that would be helpful for you. I'm not a counselor, but counselors would tell us that an exercise like this is reframing. It's looking at your life differently. It's looking at our problems differently. Whereas the prayer gets out you know, our deepest fears and anxieties. Looking you know, at that prayer and pulling out the things that I'm thankful for, the reason I'm praying that anyway, the reasons I feel so anxious are because I'm thankful for so many things. And then scrolling through that thankfulness list, thanks scrolling, helps us to reframe how we're looking at life right now. Some of you may even think, well, yeah, I know like the, the value of that. Well, I would encourage you, if you haven't practiced an exercise like this, to try it. To doom scroll less and thank scroll more. Maybe look at the news every other day. I mean, there will be enough outrageousness. You, know, you'll, you won't miss it if you looked at the news every other day instead of every day. I don't, maybe. Maybe that would work for you. Maybe not. But we could move from doom scrolling to thank scrolling. So... That's how I think of reducing my own anxiety during this time and just getting to a place where I just feel better and I can function better and I can be more present uh, for my family. Living overwhelmed with anxiety is just not the life that that we were created to live. So I hope that that you find that helpful, moving from doom scrolling to thank scrolling. Now I want to transition into the second part of uh, this message and what we'll do every week. We're going to talk about two things, reducing our own anxiety and then addressing the root causes of that anxiety. So, um, because of uh, the times we live in and that we are facing several anxiety-producing events all at once, COVID-19, an economic downturn, you know, working from home, maybe family stress, and, and, and stress from COVID, and then stress from our political situation, um, I've seen memes on social media, and you've probably seen them too, that, that we are currently dealing with two viruses in America, COVID-19 and stupidity. <laughs> have, you seen, have you seen that meme? Now, the word stupid is a word that we don't use in our household because we just tell our boys it's not nice. We, we, don't, use, we don't use that word. But I have found uh, an essay that I discovered to be helpful in how I view addressing the root causes of our anxiety, particularly political anxiety. And it might sound a little, little rough at first, but by the end, I, I think you'll, you'll come around to seeing you know, um, where I'm coming from. And I think, it's, I think it'll be helpful to you too. I hope so. So um, I want to say, and this is extremely important, disagreeing with you does not make somebody stupid. Disagreeing with, I hope that goes without saying, but we should probably say it in the time we live in. Disagreeing with me doesn't make somebody stupid. It just means they disagree. Um, but I, I came acro- across this essay from the 1970s written by uh, an economics professor named Carlo M. Sapola called The Basic Laws of Human Stupidity. <laughs> and because we don't use that word in our household, we're going to use the word foolish, uh, the biblical words, 
foolish and wise. He uses intelligent and stupid. We're not going to use those words. We're going to use more biblical words, uh, foolish and wise. And so we'll talk about the five laws of, of foolishness, and then we'll, we'll, we'll look at a chart about how this works as a society and how this could show us the most productive way that each of us could address the root causes of our political anxiety right now. So here is five laws quickly, and then I'm going to show you this, this chart and explain how this works. So first of all, and these are, I mean, these are funny, but then like you realize, wow, these kind of feel true too. Um, so first of all, Sopola writes, everyone estimates the number of foolish individuals in a society. So there are more foolish individuals in society than what you think. And in the, I mean, these are, these are funny, but this, the second law, the probability that a certain person is foolish is independent of any other characteristic. So we're not talking about IQ. A person could be cognitively delayed. They could have an IQ of 70 and they could be a wise, intelligent person in this model. Conversely, a person could be a genius with 150 IQ and they can be foolish. A person could be rich or poor. They could be successful or not. But these categories of wise and foolish apply regardless of any other characteristic. The third law, a foolish person is a person who causes losses to another person or to a group of persons while himself deriving no gain and even possibly incurring losses himself. We'll talk more about that in a second. So a foolish person hurts other people and himself and doesn't even know why. Just because foolish. And then for non-foolish people always underestimate the damaging power of foolish individuals. And then finally, a foolish person is the most dangerous type of person. So let's break this down. See what Sapola means here. And these are his four categories of people. And by the way, this reminds me of the book of Proverbs in the Bible. The book of Proverbs says things like Proverbs chapter 1, verse 32. For the waywardness of the simple will kill them and the complacency of fools will destroy them. Proverbs 10, 14, the wise store up knowledge, but the mouth of a fool invites ruin. One more, Proverbs 14, 7, stay away from a fool, for you will not find knowledge on their lips. So the whole time I was reading Sapola's essay, I'm thinking the book, the book of Proverbs. Anyway, let's take a look at his categories. So starting, starting at the top, Sapola says there are four types of people in society. The first category are people who are helpless. Now, people who are helpless help other people get what they need or what they want, but they don't get what they need or what they want. They kind of live like a doormat, like a pushover. Like they'll help other people get gains, but they won't get gains themselves. They just kind of feel powerless and they just let other people walk over them. And and they just kind of view themselves as generally helpless. All right. The next quadrant, people he calls intelligent, we'll use a more biblical word, wise. People who are wise go for the win-win. People who are wise help other people get what they want and what they need, and they also get what they want or what they need. 
It's a win-win. So both people benefit. Other people benefit, and then we also benefit. That's how wise people live in the world. Now, moving, moving down, Sopola calls the third category of people bandits. Bandits cause losses to other people. They take things from other people to get things for themselves. So they cause losses to other people while gaining themselves. This is a con man, con artist. This is somebody who's a taker. Sopola calls them a bandit. They take things from other people in order to get things for themselves. And then finally, Sopola uses the S word that we don't use in our household. We'll use the word foolish. Sopola says foolish people cause losses to other people and they cause losses to themselves. They're not even benefiting themselves. They're just acting foolishly without even thinking about why, without thinking about the consequences of their behavior. And they just hurt other people and they hurt themselves. And Sopola calls them, the S word, we'll call them foolish people. Are you thinking about wearing a mask? and about how masks have played out in our society, that there are people who won't wear a mask and they'll like go cough on people who do. What quadrant would Sapola put them in? They're hurting other people and hurting themselves. It doesn't even make any sense. There's no rationality behind it. Nobody knows why they would do that. They're just acting foolishly. They're hurting other people and they're hurting themselves. That's why Sopola says foolish people are the most dangerous people in the world because you can figure out what a bandit is doing. It's actually pretty clear. A bandit is trying to, like Nero, take care of his own needs at the expense of other people. He's trying to con people. He's trying to take something from them. Like you can, well, wise, intelligent people can see that and figure that out pretty quickly. It doesn't take long. It's predictable. You could actually do something about it. You're like, well, stop the con. Like, I'm not going to fall for that, and we're going to stop the con man, the bandit, from taking things from people. Okay, that's what wise people do. But foolish people, like, you can't predict their behavior. And here's why that's anxiety-producing. Here's why, in my opinion at least, so many of us feel overcome by anxiety in our society. We are seeing a lot of foolish people in America. We're hearing a lot of foolish people loudly proclaim their views that don't make sense. We're seeing the rise of conspiracy theories that are like, what? We're seeing people who watch propaganda all day long and then just spew that. And we're like, what are they, what are they even talking about? Like, what, what country are you living in? Like, what, or do you think about anything? Like, do you care about science? Do you care about facts? It's just like this alternate reality. And we're like, what? I, I don't realize how people could think that. And I didn't know that so many people like that lived in our country. Is this hitting home for anybody? It's like the shock that there are so many foolish people. And those foolish people are now affecting my life. I don't want my wife to get COVID from a classroom. I don't want teachers and kids to be exposed to a pandemic. I don't want people to go to a store and pass around. I don't, I don't look at all the people who are hurting economically right now because of the foolishness in our country and the lack of dealing with, with COVID-19 and, and, and when, earlier. Look at how we're being hurt by foolishness. 
So foolish people hurt themselves and they hurt other people, and we don't even know why. And does this ring true for you? It, I mean, this speaks to me like, I think this is why I feel so anxious because there are so many foolish people acting on our lives right now and making life more difficult for us. And so here's, here's how Sapola ends his essay. And it's not on the screen. I just want to read this to you. And this is why this hit home so hard for me in the time that we're living in, especially as we think about political anxiety. Um, he writes, In a country which is moving downhill, the fraction of foolish people is still equal to what it's always been. However, in the remaining population, one notices among those in power an alarming proliferation of bandits with overtones of stupidity. Are we preaching? And among those not in power, an equally alarming number of helpless individuals. Such change in the composition of the non-foolish population inevitably strengthens the destructive power of bandits and foolish people and makes decline a certainty and listen to the last sentence of his essay and the country goes to hell. So Sapola says in a country that is moving downhill that is having a difficult time functioning as a functioning society the fraction that each group represents doesn't change. It's constant over time, but in, a, in a, a society going downhill, foolish people and bandits are in power and they are allowed to make decisions more than in better times because too many people view themselves as helpless, and they're not in decision-making positions. There aren't more helpless people, they're just not in the right positions. And so this is absolutely huge. Um, Reinhold Niebuhr was a, one of the most preeminent theologians in the United States back in the 20th century in a time when theologians had more influence in society, and, and he was influential in politics as well from you know, a perspective of sharing what he believed was the Christian faith and how it applied to politics. And Niebuhr, uh, Niebuhr was a progressive, and he was one of the primary inspirations on Martin Luther King Jr. And then uh, Barack Obama listed Niebuhr as his favorite theologian. Here's what Niebuhr said about change in society. And then it, for me, it ties into Sapola. Niebuhr said, we can't just preach sermons and expect that people's hearts will magically change. People who are exorbitantly wealthy will not pay their fair share of taxes, for example, out of the goodness of their own hearts. Some might, but probably not. He, and he just uses that as an example. He says, what we have to do as people who care about ethics and morality and, and truth and justice and doing what's right for people 
Niebuhr said, you have to make people in society live justly through passing laws. Now, some of you might think, like, duh. Well, actually, there are a lot of Christian people who just think, well, you know, we just need to change in the human heart. And if we just preach good sermons and everybody just acts nicer and we just treat each other better, you know, everything will be fine. Well, Niebuhr says, actually, no, we need to work for the passing of laws. Because this is in a book, by the way, called Moral Man and Immoral Society. He said individuals are more moral than society as a whole. And to make society moral and just and fair for everybody, you just have to make it that way through passing laws, through nonviolence, but through the political process of just passing laws. And in Sapola's model, Sapola says, here's what needs to happen. And let's see if this speaks to the anxiety that you feel right now, because a lot of us do this. Sapola says, wise people trying to convince foolish people not to be foolish is just like a waste of time. It's a fool's errand. Arguing with that person at Thanksgiving dinner who doesn't really care what you think, who's just like spouting conspiracy theories, maybe you could get them to think like outside of the conspiracy theory, that would be awesome. But you're probably not going to change society convincing foolish people not to be foolish. That sounds kind of harsh. But I think the, the book of Proverbs would agree when it said, stay away from foolish people. Here's how Sapola says we can reduce our anxiety and address the root causes of the anxiety in our society, especially political anxiety. Here's what Sapola says, and I think Niebuhr says too. Our society will improve when wise people are able to convince more helpless people that they're not helpless. Because helpless people, they're on, the, they're on the wise end of the spectrum. They're not foolish. They just believe that they don't have power. They just think, man, the, the system's so messed up and I just don't know what I could do to make a difference. And I, what, what good does voting do? And what good does it do if I speak out on Facebook or Twitter? And, and I, I don't know everything. I don't, I don't understand everything. And, and they make themselves helpless. They're actually good, decent people who have a grasp of reality, but they make themselves helpless because they believe they can't make a difference. And Sapola says, wise people can convince helpless people that they're not really helpless. And that's how a society is changed. That's how we can address the root causes of our political anxiety, not by arguing with somebody who spits on you because they won't wear a mask, but by saying to people who don't think they can make a difference, no, engage, get involved. And what's the number one way we can get involved in the United States? To vote. Vote. That's the one thing we have in this country that actually has power. And, and you can get involved in your political party, whatever that is for you. You could Google them right now in your area, your political party in the name of your city, and they would love to have your, your involvement. And you can make phone calls and you can donate. And, and actually, I think it's good to post things on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram to speak your mind. I think that's good. You're actually, you're influencing other people who read that. I don't think it's bad. I don't belittle people who post things on social media about their, their opinions and, and their fact-based opinions. I think that's a good thing. It's a way of engaging. But you remember maybe a few years ago, there was a, a well-known uh, political candidate who would, who would give a speech and, and the, he would talk about you know, the opposition and people would boo. And he, he would hear them booing and he would say, don't boo, vote. 
That's this. That's wise people convincing people that they're not helpless. You're not helpless. You can engage and you can plug in and you can make a difference. And that's how, in Sapola's model, and I think, even according to the book of Proverbs, that's how wise people can address the root causes of our anxiety, and our, especially our political anxiety, and we can work for a win-win in the United States. So I wanted to end here before we, before we take communion, talking about somebody who I think is an inspiration in the time that we're living in, especially when it comes to dealing with anxiety. And, and of course, we lost John Lewis uh, last week, Congressman John Lewis, and, and uh, he was Martin Luther King Jr.'s right-hand man. He was a part of the Civil Rights Movement. He was, he was severely beaten on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in the march from Selma to Montgomery and, and thought he was going to die. But he, he lived. He made it. He made it through, even when he wasn't sure he would. And he went on to champion civil rights for the rest of his life. And, and maybe you saw his funeral this week. But I just wanted to close with a video. It's, it's like two minutes long about John Lewis. And in this video, I just want you to, to watch for the way that, that he handles anxiety. And it's kind of a funny thing. He was on Colbert and Colbert suggested that they crowd surf. And you know, uh, Congressman Lewis, he's like an older guy. And if you fall, that's a problem. Like a fall you know, from people holding you up and make, put you in the hospital. And, and it's kind of an anxiety producing thing. And, and, and so I just want you to kind of see John Lewis and then how he talked about dealing with anxiety. Let's watch. The son of sharecroppers in Troy, Alabama, John Lewis grew up surrounded by the racism and discrimination of the segregated South. As a young boy, the words of Dr. King and actions of Rosa Parks inspired him to devote his life to fighting racial injustice. And it's a life he risked time and time again. Arrested over 40 times, he endured severe beatings from angry mobs and police while standing alongside Dr. King on the front lines of the events that defined the civil rights era. He was a keynote speaker at the 1963 March on Washington, where Dr. King first told the world he had a dream. And he helped spearhead one of the seminal events that led to the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the march from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama, that would become known as Bloody Sunday. Since King's assassination in 1968, John Lewis took his activism into politics. And after three decades in Congress, he's never stopped fighting to make the dream of equality a reality. You were on uh, the Colbert show recently and you crowd surfed into the crowd. Congressman, thank, thank you so you, much. Thank you very much. You want to crowd surf? Yes. Want to jump into the crowd yes. with me? Yes. Let's do it. You've done a lot of things in your life, Congressman. What was it like to crowd surf? Well, it was amazing. It was amazing. Uh, 
I just wanted people to keep me up and not let me hit the floor. Uh, Stephen Colbert said, do you want to do this? I said, yes. You know, I crossed that bridge. I've been beaten and arrested and jailed a few times. So just go on with the flow. I thought it would be okay. And it did work out. You know, he said, I was, I was beaten on that bridge. I was left for dead. And it, it all worked out. He wasn't scared of crowd surfing. Um, and I'm sure that's how he approached his life. He was a fearless man. When you have gone through some of the most difficult experiences of life and you made it through, there's this deep well that you can draw on. I think that's what Paul is talking about. We can rejoice even in difficult times. Rejoice in the Lord and, and, pr- and don't be anxious, but you can pray with thanksgiving and you can find something you didn't know you had. And I just wanted to mention here, before we take communion here in just a moment, that we're going to um, have a discussion about what John Lewis was committed to this coming Tuesday in our very first Pub Theology. It's this Tuesday, 6 p.m. Arizona time, 9 p.m. Eastern. It's a Zoom meeting, and you can find the, the Zoom link in my weekly email, or you can find it online now at our new website, wellchurch.org, wellchurch.org. Just kind of scroll down. You'll see the Pub Theology graphic. Click on it, and you can join the Zoom meeting um, there as well. well. It's a casual conversation. Our presenter is the author of this book, Carrie Connolly, and she is the author of uh, this book, Good White Racist, um, Confronting Your Role in Racial Injustice. This isn't meant to be like pointing fingers. It's just if you're a well-intentioned person and you want to be an anti-racist and you want to make a better society and you want wise people you know, to convince helpless people they're not helpless, some of us feel helpless in this area, Man, public uh, public theology is going to be great this coming Tuesday. So I hope we have a big group there. We're going to have a great time. Bring your beverage of choice, and uh, no matter what it is, and uh, and we're going to have a great time in pub theology. So if you'd like to participate in communion with us, grab a piece of bread and a beverage where you are. And as we start this this series, distressed, living in an age of, of American anxiety, communion for us is a symbol of community. You hear communion, communi- com- community with God. And with everybody around us who wants to live the Jesus way. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. We're not alone. The situation's not hopeless. There are, there are more good people than there are evil people. And that's because of God's work in the world and God's grace as MLK said, the arc of, of justice is, uh, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. And as we take communion, we are proclaiming together, God, I want to be on team God. I want to be on team good. And we're not alone. We can do this together. We can reduce our anxiety together. We can, we can address the root causes of our anxiety together. And so as we take communion, we are reminded you are not alone in your anxiety right now. And there's something better for you. And we can join together. So on the night he was betrayed, Jesus shared a meal with with his disciples and he took bread and he thanked God for it and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you as often as you eat it. Remember me. So I invite you to take the piece of bread that you have and go ahead and consume that bread now. In the same way he took the cup, he thanked God for it. And he said, this is my blood 
of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, remember me. Let's drink from the cup. God, we are profoundly thankful as we start this new series, Distress, Living in an Age of American Anxiety, that we have the invitation here from the letter to the, to the Philippians that we can dig deeper, that we can find a, sense, a source of strength, a source of power, a source of hope, a source of joy that we did not even know existed until we were pressed and put into one of the most difficult times in American history. Just like Paul being chained in a dungeon, he probably didn't know what it meant to rejoice, to rejoice in the Lord until he was forced to. God, in our anxiety, in our, in our uh, pain right now, in our grief, in our sadness, God, we're being forced to a place where we can dig deep inside and find your spirit at work in us, producing joy and peace, like Paul says, that, pass, that, that passes understanding. It doesn't even make sense. <laughs> like, things are so bad. How could we have joy? How could we have peace? Well, because it comes from you and from, from realizing what really matters in life and from knowing that we are not alone and from knowing that we are, we are partnering with you in your work to make this world better. And, and God, ultimately, no matter how badly things go, no matter how bad it looks right now, love wins. And we can be a part of that. God, we thank you that we are not alone and we can move from doom scrolling to thanks scrolling and we can choose to be wise people who work for a win-win in our society and yes while we're stressed out over so much foolishness in our society we can convince helpless people that they're not really helpless and together we can outnumber the bandits and the foolishness that is causing our political anxiety God we thank you that we have this source of joy and this source of peace and this source of hope in you, in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen.